Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to uh, Carolina Newsmakers. We're delighted to be with you. And uh, we have as our guest someone who's been with us a number of times, and that's Tom Jensen. And uh, the reason we have asked Tom to come on this particular week is we have an election coming up. And, of course, Tom does, through public policy polling, his company, a lot of polling. And so we are going to get to have the benefit of his wisdom of who is probably going to win the elections. Is that fair to say, Tom? Uh, pretty fair, uh, yeah. Pretty fair, yeah. <laughs> Well, let's let's uh, let's take a look first of all here, right here in North Carolina, and talk about uh, the uh, the election that's coming up. And uh, we have, of course, thir- uh, fourteen congressional seats up now because North Carolina has added a congressional district. And of course, we have an important Senate race, and that race could uh, out, uh, be very pivotal in what uh, uh, could be a very close race on who controls the Senate. And that's where we're going to ask you to look at in section number two of the program today when we look at the national situation. But first of all, let's look right here at North Carolina. Tom, first of all, let's talk about what are the issues that seem to be resonating in the in the United States senatorial race. We have a congressman running against a former judge. So what are the issues and how are people uh, using those issues to decide who they're going to vote for? Uh, and who, in many cases, they've already voted for. Well, basically, you have well, each side, side trying to determine what the issues are going to be. Republicans would like this to be an election about inflation and the economy. Uh, Democrats would like this in, to be an election about abortion and personal rights and those sorts of things. And this election cycle nationally has been really topsy-turvy. Uh, the first half of the year or so, things look really good for Republicans when Gas prices were over $5, and uh, the focus was really on uh, that issue set that they want to talk about with uh, inflation and and general economic issues. Then over the summer, the climate nationally kind of shifted back to the Democrats some. Uh, The Supreme Court decision on abortion had a big impact on how people were thinking about politics. Um, Gas prices went back down. That helped Democratic prospects. And over the course of the month of August in a series of elections across the country, uh, things went really well for Democrats. And now here over the last couple of months, things have kind of shifted back to the Republicans some. And we did a set of polls and this actually wasn't in North Carolina, but I think it sort of speaks for the landscape generally. We did a bunch of polls in state Senate districts in one state in the Midwest. And we just asked uh, people what the most important issue to them was. And 20% said that abortion was the most important issue to them in the election this year. So that's something that works out well for Democrats. But then 50% said that inflation was the most important issue to them this year. That works out really well for Republicans. So I think basically what's happened here in the final run up to the election is voters are much more focused on uh, the issues that are sort of better for Republicans uh, than they are on the ones that are sort of better for Democrats. Well, here in North Carolina, you you think that the, the situation is roughly the same as that particular poll that uh, that inflation will become the biggest uh, issue, and folks deciding, especially those who may be, have been on the fence, deciding who to vote for. 
Yeah, I think inflation is the biggest issue. And another way to sort of look at that, and these things are somewhat intertwined, is often the biggest issue in a midterm election is not really what you would think of so much as an issue, but uh, it's just whether people are happy with the job that the president is doing or not. And generally, if people think the president's doing a good job, they'll vote for his party. And if they are not happy with the president, they'll vote for the party that's out of power. And almost universally in midterm elections, people are not happy with the party that's in power. So they vote for the other party. The only real exception to that in the last few decades was in 2002, in the wake of 9-11, Republicans had a good midterm election, uh, even in George W. Bush's first term. But you look at Donald Trump's first term or only term, you look at Barack Obama's first term, you look at Bill Clinton's first term, all their parties got wiped out in the midterm. Uh, and Democrats may not be headed for quite as bad of an outcome as usually happens for the president's party in a midterm, but certainly broadly, uh, it's looking like it'll be a, a very good year for Republicans. Now, you mentioned inflation as being a uh, topic of interest of 50%. What about the R word, recession? Was was that on uh, people's minds uh, as of yet, or are people just sort of ignoring that possibility? I think that most people <laughs> don't spend a lot of time thinking about what's to come. It's very much a, a focus on the here and now. So not a lot of specific concern about a possible uh, recession further down the line. But I think there's just a general sort of economic anxiety that encompasses all of these sorts of issues like inflation and the stock market being down and the possibility of a recession and that sort of thing. Voters are just generally kind of in a bad mood uh, is, is one way I would kind of just sum it up. And if you're in a bad mood, you, you vote for a change. And in this particular election, that means voting Republican. How many people uh, raise the Ukraine issue as an issue? What percentage of folks in your polling, was that just not a factor? Yeah, it's not not something that we've seen have much of an impact on uh, this year's election at all. Really, the biggest thing that we've seen sort of have, it, it's moved up and down and polls have moved up and down is gas prices. And I intellectually think that's kind of silly. Uh, if gas is a dollar tomorrow, Joe Biden doesn't get doesn't deserve credit for that. But if when gas was $5 in July, Joe Biden didn't deserve blame for that either. The president does not have that much to do with uh, gas prices. But things got worse and worse for Democrats earlier in the year when gas prices were on the rise. Things got better and better for Democrats over the summer when gas prices were on the decline. And once gas prices sort of stopped dropping, things got a little bit better for the Republicans again. So uh, it's, it's, it's really sort of a very small scale issue. But in some ways, it seems like that's been one of the biggest things that's caused the needle to move back and forth this year. Former President Trump, of course, is always in the news and has always tried uh, in the last uh, year particularly to influence uh, candidates for the Republican uh, side uh, as far as getting on the, on, the, uh, on the ballot, first of all, and now in the general election. What is the Trump factor? Is this a factor or is this just something that... Uh, uh, the news media is occupied with, and it's really not uh, a determining factor in any of the races. But what, what's the situation with the Trump factor? Well, this is a fascinating dynamic to look out for on Tuesday. I think that the four most competitive Senate races are probably Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Nevada. Those are the states that are going to decide 
who ends up being the Republican nominee for president. Uh, and I mean, <laughs> that, that are going to decide who has control of the Senate, excuse me. Uh, and in all four of those states, when we ask people, would you rather have Republicans or Democrats in charge of the U.S. Senate, people say that they would rather have Republicans in charge of the U.S. Senate in those states. But when we ask people who they're going to vote for, in Pennsylvania right now, the Democrats up by one, and uh, Arizona, the Democrats up by one, and uh, New Hampshire, the Democrats up by three, and Georgia, the Democrats up by one, all very close races. But in all those states where people say they want a Republican Senate, right now they're leaning ever so slightly to the Democrat. And the reason for that is uh, those races almost across the board have Republican nominees for Senate who were endorsed by Donald Trump, which helped them get through the primary, but they're very weak and unpopular candidates. Uh, and part of that taint for them is the association with Trump, who continues to be so unpopular. So in all these key Senate races, the Democratic candidate is a much better candidate than the Republican candidate is. And that's giving Democrats a fighting chance when, in general, they ought to have already lost all these places. I think the first time we chatted this year in January, I told you I thought Republicans would get control of the Senate 54 to 46. And they may still get control of the Senate 54 to 46. It's possible. But Democrats have hung in in a lot of these key Senate races a lot longer than they uh, probably should have been able to because of Trump putting forth all these candidates who have turned out to be so poor. Of course, when you say they're up by one, then that means the uh, the uh, get out to vote and who gets their, their vote out is going to be the determining factor because that's a very thin margin. It is. And here's uh, here's something that we're seeing across the board that I think is very significant. Uh, let's say that in a Senate race, we have the Democrat up 46 to 45. Well, when we're writing about this for our client, we say, OK, here's who the nine percent are who are undecided so that you can understand who these people are. Uh, and generally, among that undecided pool, Joe Biden will have about a 20 percent approval rating and about a 70 percent disapproval rating. And usually we'll find that these undecided voters, uh, when you ask them generically who they'd vote for, just taking the candidate, the actual candidates out of it, but just saying, do you want to vote for a Democrat or a Republican? Uh, the Republicans usually have a 20, 30 point lead on that. So we're constantly telling clients when a Democrat has a one point lead, well, if the undecideds vote their generic ballot, then the Republican would win by two. And if the undecideds vote Democratic if they approve of Biden, but vote Republican if they disapprove of Biden, then the Republican would win by four. So you can very easily see within these polls how one point lead for a Democrat might turn into a four point win for a Republican. And what Democrats are going to need to have happen to avoid that fate is have these undecided voters decide that they think that Trump and these Republican candidates who he's put forth would be worse for the country than Biden, who they're already unhappy with. And my guess is that most of those people are going to decide that Biden's the bigger problem and end up voting Republican. But if there is a path for Democrats to hold on in these super tight races, it's for voters to decide that, yeah, we're not happy with Biden. We don't like the Democrats very much, but we think that Republicans and the continued influence of Trump would be even worse. 
Okay, so having said all of that, <laughs> you sound a little bit like an economist who says, on the other hand. <laughs> okay, so tell me who you think is going to win in those four key states, the Democrat or the Republican, state think, by state. I think the Republican's going to win in Pennsylvania. I think the Democrat's going to win in Arizona. I think the Democrat's going to win in Nevada. And I think that Georgia's going to go to a runoff. So you're going to end up in a situation after Election Day where Republicans have 50 seats, Democrats have 49 seats, uh, and control of the U.S. Senate is decided by a runoff election in Georgia, just like happened two years ago. If you really held a gun to my head, that would be my prediction. But it would not take a lot for Republicans to win all those races I was just talking about and end up with something more like 53 or 54 seats. So it's going to be an interesting night uh, to watch the election. And of course, a large, large number of people have already voted. Uh, and it's too bad we don't have the benefit of knowing how they voted because it would take some of the, uh, uh, the uh, excitement out of watching the returns. Uh, but uh, it will mean that the returns will come in sooner in most cases. So we won't be staying up to 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. in all of those states, I don't think. Our guest is Tom Jensen, Public Policy Polling. In the next segment, segment we're going to take a look at the uh, congressional situation and see what uh, Tom's crystal ball says there. We'll be back right after these messages. To some people, the sound of a baby babbling doesn't mean much. But that's not necessarily true. By six months, they're combining vowels and consonants. By nine months, they're trying out different kinds of sounds. And by 12 months, their babbling is beginning to take on some meaning. Especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Early screening and intervention can make a lifetime of difference and unlock a world of possibilities. Take the first step at AutismSpeaks.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. It's important for you to talk to someone about it. I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back on uh, Newsmakers, and our guest this week is uh, Tom Jensen, who, of course, has been with us a number of times. Tom makes his living uh, asking people what they think and then trying to interpret it as uh, he heads up public policy polling, a company that not only has uh, a large base of uh, subscribers and folks who depend on them here in North Carolina, but across the country as well. So they're well known and their predictions in the past have turned out to be very accurate. That's the reason we'd like to have Tom on. And on top of that, he's a neighbor of ours. He is, his uh, offices are right next door to ours here in uh, Highwoods in Raleigh, North Carolina. Well, Tom, we talked a lot in the first segment about the United States Senate 
and how its makeup might turn out in the uh, the election. Of course, North Carolina, as we said, has a senatorial race, but we also have 14 congressional seats. And uh, those uh, because we've added a district, uh, the lines have been redrawn, and we've got a number of kind of interesting races that uh, maybe some of them have become a little bit more interesting than they started out. So let's first take a look at uh, right here in North Carolina, and then we'll take a look at how that might impact uh, the uh, the total outcome in the uh, in the Senate. Uh, I mean, in the House. So let's uh, take it district by district in North Carolina and tell us who's running and how you think they will fare and how North Carolina will end up voting on uh, uh, after the count is in on Tuesday. Yeah, there's really only two congressional districts in North Carolina that are competitive at all, uh, which is pretty much par for the course with uh, how things go these days where there's just fewer districts across the country that are uh, that are very likely to go back and forth between the two parties. So definitely the most competitive congressional race in the state is in the 13th district, which covers uh, Wake County and Johnson County and some other eastern areas. Uh, it's a district that voted for Joe Biden by one and a half points in 2020. So it's very close in that election, too. Uh, and you have the candidates, Wiley Nickel on the Democratic side as a state senator, uh, and Bo Hines on the Republican side as a, a young man who, frankly, has not done a whole lot in his life. Uh, and I think that distillation is why this is a competitive race. Uh, most districts across the country that uh, only voted for Biden by one or two points in 2020, almost all of those kinds of districts are going to the Republicans this year. Uh, and this race has stayed very competitive, even as most districts that are similar have not stayed competitive because Bo Hines on the Republican side is another one of those sort of weak candidates put forth by Donald Trump that we've been talking about. Uh, at one point, he was basically branding himself as being another Madison Cawthorn. Uh, and we saw uh, in the primary in the spring in the mountains that uh, folks there didn't, even Republicans there didn't want Madison Cawthorn. So uh, I still think because of the politics of the district and the fact that it's a good year for Republicans, if you really forced me to make a prediction, I would say that Bo Hines is going to win anyway uh, for the Republicans. But it's stayed a very competitive race all the way to the end because Wiley Nickel uh, is a stronger, more experienced candidate than he is. Uh, the other North Carolina... Are the Go issues ahead. in this district pretty much the same as they are nationwide? Is it uh, the abortion issue and the inflation issue, the two guiding factors? Yeah, that plus a whole lot of personal attacks. Uh, that's definitely been a hallmark of uh, this particular race. It's one of those races that you end up and voters don't like either candidate, but they still have to pick one. Interesting. Okay. I interrupted you before you went to the other competitive race. So what is the other district that is, in your opinion, uh, still competitive? The other competitive race is the first district in the northeastern part of the state where G.K. Butterfield's retiring. Uh, and it's in some ways kind of a similar situation in terms of the candidate backgrounds to uh, the 13th district. The Democratic candidate is Don Davis, who's been in the state Senate for quite a long time now. Uh, the Republican candidate is Sandy Smith, who, uh, you know, has not held office before, not not a lot to say in terms of qualifications. 
Uh, and this is a more Democratic district. It voted for Joe Biden by eight or nine points uh, in 2020. Uh, and it's generally perceived that uh, because Don Davis is a stronger and more seasoned candidate uh, than Sandy Smith, that the Democrats will uh, come out on top here and hold on to this seat. Uh, the, the one sort of caveat I would make to that is sometimes if it really turns out to be a wave election for one party or the other, uh, you'll have a party win some seats that people really didn't expect them to win. And nobody is expecting the Republicans to win in this district. But it strikes me as the kind of district that if there was going to be a big surprise, even in the national context, this is the kind of place where you possibly could end up with a big surprise. And the reason I say that is because this is a mostly rural district uh, and it's the least well-educated congressional district in the state. And rural areas have been getting more and more Republican uh, in recent election cycles and less well-educated voters have been getting more and more Republican. We've seen this real sort of resorting of the electorate along educational lines where Democrats are doing better and better with highly educated voters, but Republicans are doing better and better with less well-educated voters. So those trends in this district would be of benefit to Republicans. Uh, and then this is also a district where uh, Democrats are, are very dependent on there being at least somewhat strong black turnout. Uh, and so far, the early voting numbers across the state, black turnout has not been that great. Uh, so if you ended up having poor black turnout, uh, these less educated rural voters are just continuing the trend of becoming more and more uh, Republican. And the election just in general ends up being better for Republicans, even than people are expecting. That's how you could possibly end up with an upset in a district like this. But as things stand, Davis is favored to win by five or six points. Okay, so uh, the other districts, the other 12 districts are, in your opinion, pretty safe for the party that now represents them. So what will North Carolina's uh, final count be as far as how many Democrats and how many Republicans we have out of the 14 seats that we have in the United States House of Representatives? Uh, Republicans would have an eight to six uh, advantage in the delegation. And that's uh, kind of interesting because North Carolina is such a purple state. That's that's sort of a purple outcome. Yeah. So uh, just briefly uh, go over those other 12 districts very quickly and, and uh, talk about the the, uh, the, uh, the expected winner, just very briefly. Sure. Second Congressional District, Democrat Deborah Ross should have an easy reelection uh, in the triangle. Third Congressional District out east, uh, Greg Murphy, Republican, should easily win. Uh, fourth district in the triangle, Democrat Valerie Fushi, who's currently in the state Senate, uh, will replace David Price as the uh, member of Congress for Durham and Orange County. Uh, in the fifth district, sort of uh, in the foothills, uh, Virginia Fox will be back in for another term on the Republican side. Uh, in the triad, Democrat Kathy Manning uh, will get her second term uh re-elected uh in southeastern north carolina david rouser for the republicans is likely to keep his seat uh in the eighth district which sort of stretches from charlotte east across uh some of the state uh dan bishop the republican uh is likely to win another term in the ninth district richard hudson the republican is likely to win another term uh in the 10th district out in the mountains patrick mchenry the republicans likely to win another term 
Uh, in the 11th district where Madison Cawthorn lost in the primary uh, for the Republicans in May, uh, he'll be replaced by Chuck Edwards, who's a current state senator. Uh, sort of a recurring theme, a lot of North Carolina state senators may be new members of Congress in January. Uh, in the 12th district, uh, centered around Charlotte, Democrat Alma Adams should easily win re-election. Uh, and then another state senator headed to Congress, Jeff Jackson, for the Democrats in the 14th district, uh, centered around Mecklenburg County. So uh, we could have a world where every single uh, new member of uh, Congress uh, from North Carolina is currently a state senator. We could be sending 10% uh, of the current state Senate to Washington in this election. That's interesting. I don't think we've ever had that many that, that made the jump from the North Carolina House to the United States House in one election. No, and I, I hadn't even thought about it like that until you asked me to go through them district by district. I hadn't it hadn't occurred to me that it was that many. If there is an upset in any of those, which one is more likely to be one that uh, might be uh, some something to watch? I really think in the those 12 districts that we just ran through that all of them are about 99% plus on the, the likelihood of the outcome. But I think if there was somehow going to be a surprise, it, it might be Jeff Jackson uh, losing in the 14th district for the Democrats, just because that district is slightly less Democratic heavy than all those other districts are either Democratic or Republican heavy. And if it is a super, super, super good year for Republicans, some districts like that could come into play. Uh, but I think that even on top of the district, just being pretty double digits in favor of the Democrats, Jeff Jackson's a good candidate too. So I think uh, it'll be quite surprising if any of the races besides the two we talked about at greater length even end up in single digits. Okay, so North Carolina goes eight to six, Republicans and Democrats nationwide. And uh, so what's going to make up the House? How, who's, going to, who's going to have control of the House nationwide? Republicans are almost definitely going to end up with control of the House. Um, and the only question really is the size of the margin. Uh, something that's sort of been a hallmark of this election is there's a, a lot of very Democratic places that have come in play. Uh, we've been pulling in a number of districts in places like New York and in Oregon, uh, where even districts that Joe Biden won by 12 or 13 points uh, have ended up being very competitive, where you would usually expect somewhere uh, that's traditionally that Democratic leaning to not be on the table in terms of being a place that Republicans could win. So in those sorts of reach seats for the Republicans, the races are really close. Uh, if Republicans actually can win in places like that, uh, you know, there's a good chance that they'll end up with somewhere between 230 and 240 seats, uh, with the Democrats having somewhere between uh, 195 and 205. So you could end up with a pretty robust Republican majority. I think the best case scenario for Democrats in terms of the House nationally on election night uh, is if some of these elections in bluer places because Republicans are also really heavily targeting a seat in Connecticut. They're really heavily targeting a seat in Rhode Island. I mean, places where you don't usually think about Republicans being particularly competitive. If those places sort of revert to their normal uh, voting patterns at the end and end up voting Democratic, uh, you may see Republicans with a more narrow majority somewhere in the area of 220 to 230 
out of the 435 House seats where uh, where it's still pretty close. But uh, it'll be quite an upset uh, if Republicans do not get control of the House on Tuesday. Well, and uh, in other words, uh, things are not radically different from what we talked about in January when you were on the program before. The outcome looks like it's going to be pretty much the same as the forecast that you made at, at that time. Yep, it's been more of a winding road than I would have expected because uh, I know that when we talked at the beginning of September, uh, things were looking a lot better for Democrats than they had in January. Uh, and I'm not sure that things are quite as bad for Democrats now as they were at the very start of the year when we talked, uh, but definitely looking more like January than it's looking like September when there was more hope for Democrats. Well, in the next segment, uh, we're going to talk about uh, what's on the minds of people. We mentioned this briefly in the beginning, and you mentioned, of course, inflation being such a big uh, factor in people's considerations right now. But uh, there are other things, and we want to talk about those. And we'll do that when we come back with the next segment of Carolina Newsmakers. You stay tuned. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry. I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest is Tom Jensen. Tom has been on our program a number of times, and he heads up public policy polling. And uh, we ask him, of course, to be on this issue, on this edition, primarily because we wanted to get his input on how uh, the final outcomes might uh, turn out on uh, Tuesday night when all the votes are cast and counted. And and uh, we've already taken a look at uh, that, not only uh, in the uh, the House, but also the United States Senate. And uh, Tom has uh, sort of forecasted that uh, he believes that the uh, Republicans will have control of both the House and the Senate. Tom, we uh, mentioned early in the program, you said that uh, uh, inflation seems to be the number one thing that's on people's minds these days. Uh, I think you said 50% of those that you talked about said that that was their number one issue. Uh, you also said that uh, the R word, recession, is not one of those. Uh, but uh, uh, 
as we enter the uh, next uh, two years and we begin to look at who is going to lead the country, because we will have a presidential election in two years, what what do you think will determine who will be the nominees for the two parties? Obviously, as people look at Joe Biden, they look at his age and also, of course, uh, as you've said, his performance has not uh, met with great approval of the general public right now. So do you think he will be a candidate? And if so, what will have to happen in order for him to be a candidate? Well, I think what's true for both Joe Biden and Donald Trump at this point is if they want to be their party's nominee in 2024, they will be. Uh, Joe Biden's overall approval ratings may not be that good, but he's still pretty overwhelmingly popular with Democrats. I think if he wants another term, I doubt anybody serious would even run against him. Uh, So I I think basically what he needs to do to get nominated again anyway is is just say that he wants to be. And I think that'll probably uh, become a a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I will say he's done a little bit here over the last few months to sort of get himself back in better standing with the Democratic Party base. If there was anything that was sort of giving him trouble with Democrats uh, over the last few years, it was that there was really no enthusiasm for him from, from young people who tend to be an important part of the Democratic base. Uh, but over the last few months, he finally did student loan forgiveness. Uh, he did some stuff making marijuana laws more lenient. Uh, and we've seen that even though his overall approval numbers are still poor, his numbers with the party base have definitely uh, improved. We were uh, sometimes over the summer finding that even among people who voted for Biden in 2020, his approval rating was only in the 60s. And we're now consistently finding that back up in the 80s. So there's definitely not much uh, appetite within the Democratic Party uh, to go in a different direction at this point if Biden would like to be the candidate again. Let's uh, suppose that he elects not to because there are some concerns about his health and, of course, his age. uh, uh, Because I'm in that age group, I know health can change in a hurry. So let's assume for a moment that he might that uh, one of those factors may come into play or that he just decides I've had enough. Who are the possibilities um, that uh, are out there for the Democrats to turn to if Biden elects not to run? I think that probably the two biggest possibilities that uh, jump off the top of my head are both people who were part of the extensive Democratic presidential field in 2020. Uh, I certainly think the immediate front runner to to be the nominee, uh, nominee, assuming she wants it, would be uh, Vice President Harris. Uh, I think another big contender would be uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who certainly uh, made a very strong uh, impression during his first uh, campaign for president. If you're thinking in terms of somebody who wasn't a presidential candidate in 2020, who perhaps could be a big player this time around if there ends up being Uh, an open fight for the nomination. It would be Gavin Newsom, uh, the governor of California, I think definitely has presidential ambitions and obviously being the governor of California has a huge uh, fundraising base and has a good story to tell about the progressive things he's done during the course of his time as governor of California and before that as mayor of San Francisco. So uh, those are three names that I would sort of think of as being kind of at the top of the list if, uh, if Biden does step aside. Now, President Trump, of course, is uh, uh, everyone knows that he would like to be president again. I think that's for sure. 
but he's also a realist. And uh, if he thinks he's not going to win, I, my my guess is that he would, uh, rather than ever admit that, he just decide, he'd just say, I'm not going to run. That That's my personal opinion. But having said that, um, in your polling, it doesn't seem like that many people who are in the Trump camp are very concerned about the uh, all the legal concerns or problems that his company seems to be facing right now. Uh, and also uh, the Republican Party seems to be very concerned about some of the candidates he's backing, but uh, no one seems to want to move out and challenge that. So where is the Republican Party going to go? Uh, will they uh, stick with Trump right down to the final or will they look somewhere else? Uh, I, I definitely think it's right there for the taking for Trump. It's definitely still his party and his record this year in endorsing candidates and primaries across the country has been pretty impeccable. Uh, there have been a few exceptions, but uh, overwhelmingly, if Trump says he wants someone to be a nominee for something, he's been getting his way about that. And I think certainly that would extend to Trump being the nominee for something if he wanted to be. Um, so he does have sort of a, a lock hold over the party still. If he does end up deciding he doesn't want to run, uh, I think it's unusually clear who the Republican nominee would be at this point uh, is Ron DeSantis. Uh, the two of them really are taking up by far and away the most oxygen within the party. And of course, it's 2022 and a lot could change between now and the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary 15 months from now. Uh, but at this point, uh, if Trump decided not to run, DeSantis is just uh, heads and shoulders above the field uh, in, in terms of his amount of uh, sort of popularity, which it's unusual to have somebody in, a, in what would be sort of an open seat situation like that. It would be unusual to have somebody be such a clear front runner. Uh, but DeSantis, with the way he's sort of uh, carried on during his first term as governor of Florida has has really positioned himself pretty well to be the primary Trump alternative. But I don't think he would run against Trump. I think that's just if Trump doesn't run, he's going to be at the head of the line. Interesting. So uh, let's assume for a moment that neither Trump or Biden run and the scientist runs. Will he carry all the support and all the uh, Trump supporters uh, that are so uh, so strong for Trump, will that be his base and will that be enough to elect him as president or will the Democrats have a good chance? Well, I think the Democrats will have a good chance. Uh, you know, one thing that's important to keep in mind with the fact that it is likely that uh, Republicans will do so well in the election this week uh, is that doesn't necessarily mean that just because Republicans do really well in the election this week that Biden is doomed for re-election. Uh, in 2010, Republicans had a far bigger year than they're likely to have this year. And there was all this commentary in the wake of it that Obama was done and there was no way Obama would get a second term. And then two years later, Obama pretty dominantly got reelected. So uh, just having a really bad midterm doesn't necessarily mean that the, the president's doomed. Uh, but I think it's a fascinating question with DeSantis. Uh, whether he could get out all the same people uh, that Trump did, because a big part of why Trump did as well as he did in the elections he ran in is he got a lot of people to vote who had never bothered to vote before. They had never had a candidate who, who really appealed to them in the way that Trump did. So Trump really 
personally change the electorate by bringing out all these people who were not accustomed to being engaged in the process. And it is going to be fascinating to see uh, if, if somebody else, DeSantis or anybody, can get those people activated to the same extent as Trump and sort of shifting the attention back to this Tuesday. Uh, it's always possible that Democrats could have a, a, a better election this year than expected. I'm not expecting that, which I guess is the essence of not expecting it. Uh, but if Democrats do have a better election than expected on Tuesday, it's going to be because those Trump voters didn't come back out for the midterm. They did not come back out if Trump wasn't on the ballot. Uh, that is how Democrats would outperform. So this week is actually going to be, I think, an interesting test of the extent to which the Trump base turns out when Trump's not on the ballot, uh, because if it doesn't, that would definitely mitigate Democrats' losses. The Ukraine situation is interesting in the sense that it is, uh, we're putting an awful lot of money in it, and the public doesn't seem to be very concerned one way or the other. Um, I guess if there were a referendum, most people would say that we need to support them. I'm just guessing. What would be your guess if that were a referendum? I think it would definitely, this, this is what I think would happen. I think it would definitely start out polling well ahead, and then we would have to see how well-funded the opposition was. And if the opposition was very well-funded and, you know, ran a really demagogic campaign against it, I think it might end up failing in the end. It's, it's, it's the kind of thing to me where, uh, you know, people on the surface would say that they supported it, but if they really got pumped full of sort of uh, right-wing uh, messaging against it, I could definitely see them ending up in a very different place uh, by the end. And I'll, I'll tell you specifically what I'm thinking of when I talk about that. Uh, something we've seen in gun polling over the years is that when you ask people just generically, do you support or oppose background checks for all gun sales? That's usually an 80% yes uh, kind of proposition. But what we found anytime that these actually end up on the ballot in a particular state is that they end up only passing like 51 to 49 or something like that, even though they started out polling at 80, because even though people think that the idea is really good on the surface, it's not something that they have such a strongly held feeling about uh, that they can't be persuaded to change their minds with a bunch of advertising and that sort of thing. So that is how I think a, a Ukraine vote would play out. We we would get more and more selfish as it went along. You mentioned gun control. I'm a little surprised in that uh, uh, tally that you gave us earlier about 50 percent of the public saying inflation is their number one topic. I would have thought public safety would have been very high on people's minds with all the uh, uh, shootings and uh, disasters of those kinds that we've had recently. I would have thought that would have been a little bit more on people's minds. Well, it definitely is one of the biggest issues crime is, and it's something that's worked uh, significantly to Republicans' benefit, uh, particularly in a lot of suburban areas across the country. Um, even though the Democratic Party in general in 2020 never did anything like adopting defund the police as the party's position or anything like that, that phrase defund the police has done Democrats so much damage uh, over the last few years because uh, whether that's actually the Democratic Party's position or not, which it's not, uh, enough people have said that, that Republicans have been able to very effectively sort of hang that around the Democrats' necks uh, in a way that uh, I think ended up 
significantly limiting how well Democrats did in 2020. Uh, I think if not for being perceived as weak on crime, Democrats uh, would have won many more congressional and legislative seats across the country in 2020. Uh, and that's continued to be sort of the biggest Republican talking point this year alongside inflation. Uh, so I, I definitely, even though inflation has been the biggest thing, crime's been right up there. Oh, okay. Well, that that answers that because, as I said, I would have I would have thought that would have been on people's minds to a large degree because of the incidents that we've had that have been so disturbing. Our guest is Tom Jensen. He's the director of public policy polling. We've talked about all sorts of things, but in the next segment, I want to talk about negative ads, the effect of negative ads, and uh, how people get their information that leads them to make a decision on who they're going to vote for. And we'll do that when we return with the final segment of Carolina Newsmakers. As an 18-year-old, I let my mistakes kind of take over my life. I was 0.5 credits away from completing high school, and I didn't do it. Ten years later, at age 28, Jackie finished her high school diploma. When I found out that I was pregnant, I know that I had to do something for myself if I wanted to make her a better person and provide a better life for her. My family never stopped pushing for me to be better because they knew what I could become and who I could become as a person. My support team is amazing. The educational director, my sister, and even my seven-year-old daughter has just been more than the support that I could ask for. But I've been given an opportunity, and I'm just thankful for it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo. GOAT, G O A T, acronym, stands for greatest of all time, as in spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is Tom Jensen. And as we've said in introducing Tom, we thought it was very appropriate for him to be with us because of his... Uh, uh, the particular fields that he's in. Uh, he's doing an awful lot of research on how people are going to vote, and he's already given us his thoughts on how the election is going to turn out. And we'll sort of review those very briefly at the end. But in this final segment, I wanted to talk a little bit about negative ads because that is about all we see on television, all we hear on radio. Uh, even the social media ads are basically negative. Um, Negative ads seem to work and positive ads don't seem to work. Why is that? I think it's just a reflection that the biggest thing that motivates people now to, to go vote is sort of hatred of the other side. Uh, so there's very little, oh, I'm so excited about candidate X. I can't wait to go vote for them. And people are just considerably more motivated by, oh, I hate so-and-so on the other side. So I can't wait to go vote against them. Uh, and so I think that uh, it's hard to say where the, uh, the the chicken and the egg is on that sort of uh, front, whether the negative ads make people excited to go vote against people or if people are just already sort of in that 
mindset about being excited to go vote against people and the negative ads reinforce that. But uh, I think it's basically just a measure of the toxicity in our political environment where everybody hates each other so much uh, that sort of hating one of the candidates is the best way to, to get people to go uh, motivated to go vote for who you want them to. Interesting. Now, we've also seen in the last, uh, well, I guess uh, the trend started maybe as much as 25 years ago, but the number of people who register now as unaffiliated, not only here in North Carolina, but across the country, seems to get bigger each year. And in North Carolina, it's getting very close, if not already, a plurality. Of course, all of those voters have a leaning one way or the other. Uh, they're not truly independent. Uh, they lean one way or the other. In North Carolina, um, we have uh, uh, a very large contingency of unaffiliated voters. One of the things that sort of bothers me about that is if you're an unaffiliated voter, you have sort of taken yourself out of the opportunity to run for, for office. Does that bother you, Tom, that uh, we've got roughly, what, 35, 40% of people who are leaning toward or are already registered as unaffiliated? That means they're sort of out of the, uh, the pool for uh, serving in public office. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem with unaffiliated as candidates for office is just that there's no sort of unifying thread that uh, that binds together all those unaffiliated voters. So even though two people might both be registered unaffiliated, one of them might be unaffiliated because he's super, super liberal and thinks that the Democratic Party is way too moderate. And then another one of them might be registered unaffiliated because they're super, super conservative and think that the Republican Party is too moderate. So those two people, even though they're both unaffiliated, are never going to agree on anything. Uh, and that's why it makes it hard so that even though unaffiliateds are the largest group of voters, uh, you're, you're not going to see very many elected to office because there just isn't any sort of unifying theme among the unaffiliateds, except that you dislike both of the major political parties. But your reasons for disliking both of the major political parties just could be all over the place rather than uh, sharing any sort of common thread. Debates. Uh, at one time, people were very interested in debates. Now it seems that the incumbent shies away from debates because they feel like they have nothing to gain and everything to lose. Uh, but even when they have a debate, are enough people watching the debates uh, that they are a factor in the end? Uh, how many people in your polling will say, I changed my mind because of the debate or a debate? Out of every single Senate and governor's race in the country this year, only one debate has really generated a whole lot of buzz at all, which was the Pennsylvania Senate debate last week. And that was just buzzy because John Fetterman was participating in it less than five months after having a stroke. And people were just sort of curious about how he was going to perform in the debate based on that. Uh, other than that, there's really been no interest or significance of any of the debates that have happened anywhere in the country this cycle. Uh, obviously, we had just one debate for our Senate race, and it was on a Friday night on uh, cable. Uh, and I adore the person who hosted it, Tim Boyum. Uh, but I think the reality is most North Carolinians have something better to do on Friday night than watch a U.S. Senate debate on TV. So that certainly did not uh, have much of an impact on the state of the race. Uh, and another thing that was sort of interesting about sort of the North Carolina Senate debate picture uh, is 
Ted Budd refused to have any more than the one debate, and that just didn't turn into a liability for him at all. Uh, it used to be this, uh, you know, uh, a situation where it was really going to cause you some problems if you were perceived as trying to dodge debate and that sort of thing. Uh, and as sort of norms uh, in our politics have declined and declined, uh, you're not going to get in any trouble now because you refuse to do a debate. I mean, nobody cares about that. So I definitely think to your point that that's just sort of dying out as something that's particularly relevant in political races. Is it fair to say we have more apathy now than we did 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Well, it's complicated. Uh, I actually think we're going to see just about record levels of uh, participation uh, in the midterm election. And we had extremely high levels of participation in the last few presidential races. Uh, so I, I think in a sense, there's a high level of engagement. But what what I would say is it's not a deep level of engagement. Like you have lots of people, uh, you know, motivated to, to go vote because either they're a Democrat and they hate Trump or they're a Republican and they hate Biden and Pelosi. So they're motivated to go vote because of that sort of thing. Uh, but I think you could you could make an argument that there's high voter turnout and that there's also apathy because I think people are making much more emotional decisions about everything related to politics and not giving the sort of deeper thought to it that they might have done uh, in past election cycles. I think in the past, you had a lot more people reading the newspaper and uh, taking in more substantive information on the radio and on television and that sort of thing, and really making an effort to, to get to be familiar with the candidates and that sort of thing. And of course, we had such a long tradition here in North Carolina where people would really vote very differently for state races than they would for national races uh, because candidates could sort of get their own brand that was separate from the national party. And everything's just gotten more and more nationalized. Uh, and I think because of that, uh, people aren't as informed and they're just more tribal. Uh, and we've sort of seen the, the the outcomes that's led to in terms of how much nastier and unproductive everything has gotten in both Washington, D.C. and Raleigh. So if you were advising a candidate who is thinking about running for office, how would you establish your position right now to allow yourself to get on the ballot, uh, win a primary, and then position yourself to win a race in North Carolina? What, what uh, means would you use? Would you use social media? Would you... Uh, the newspaper is just not a factor. It's nearly, I guess it's still somewhat of a factor, but not anywhere close to where it used to be as far as a source of information. So how does information get out? How do people decide uh, what they feel or how they uh, uh, come about uh, deciding that a candidate is uh, one that they they will choose to vote for? More and more of that kind of stuff is just coming from social media uh, and also partisan media, uh, you know, where people more and more just want to listen to news with a conservative slant if they're a Republican or they just want to listen to news with a liberal slant if they're a Democrat and that sort of thing. Um, I think if I was advising a candidate, I'd tell them to spend a higher and higher percentage of their budget for advertising on digital ads as opposed to running ads on the five o'clock news on WRL or something like that, just because you can target people uh, in such a more effective manner. Uh, it always it always sort of blows my mind when I'm 
uh, home in Chapel Hill watching a football game and I'll see ads on my TV for legislative candidates from Rocky Mount. Well, you're paying a lot of money uh, to, 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 to run ads on, on linear TV that maybe only 5% of the people who are watching actually have the ability to vote for you. Uh, so I'd be spending more and more on methods of communicating with voters that are really directly targeted at individual voters where you know something about who they are uh, and, and, and can try to tailor a message effectively to them rather than just hitting everybody across the board with the same thing. Are the parties ultimately dead? Is it just that we haven't buried them yet? I think they're definitely becoming less and less relevant as uh, political forces. And to your point earlier about our you know, huge proliferation of unaffiliated voters, uh, that's very much a reflection of the fact that most people registering to vote now don't want to be either Democrats or Republicans. They don't think that either party uh, particularly well serves their needs. Uh, something I heard recently that was kind of fascinating is among people in the last couple of years who have registered to vote in dorms at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, 75% are unaffiliated, 23% are Democrats, and 2% are Republicans. So even among a, a, a block of people who you would expect to be very strongly Democratic, uh, like students at UNC Chapel Hill, 75% of them are choosing to register unaffiliated because they don't actually like the Democratic Party. They might vote for Democratic candidates, but they still don't like the Democratic Party. Interesting. Well, that's, uh, you know, when I say are the parties dead, uh, as they are constituted now, I'm wondering if they might not have to do some revamping of their positioning to remain relevant. I don't know. I'm, I'm uh, I, of course, everyone that listens to this program knows that I'm one of those who has chosen to vote uh, and uh, be become uh, unaffiliated as far as my registration. And also, uh, when they see the, the way I mark up my ballot, my uh, pinball machine, it would say tilt because <laughs> I, I skip back and forth. So I'm not one that uh, is a very good uh, example of, of uh, someone who's loyal to a political party. Uh, I'm you're, you're, part, you're, you're part of the 1% of voters who really do go back and forth between the two parties. I, I really do. And uh, I've enjoyed doing that. Well, Tom, <laughs> uh, very quickly, again, uh, uh, early in the program, you, you uh, suggested that the United States House and Senate are likely to be uh, in the hands of Republicans after the election on Tuesday night, and that you also forecasted that uh, North Carolina's congressional makeup for our 14 congressmen will be eight Democrats, I mean, eight Republicans and six uh, Democrats. And uh, But you did not uh, make a prediction on the United States Senate race. So very quickly, how do you think that was going to come out here in North Carolina? I think Ted Budd will probably win by three or four points in the end. Okay, that sort of wraps up the program and gives me just enough time to say if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear the entire broadcast. Or if you're listening to one of the stations that only carries the half-hour version, the two segments that you missed are also available. We'll be back again next week with another guest, and we'll look forward to seeing you at that time. Till next week, same time. Have a good week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong 
Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.